0: We're in John chapter 6, we're going to pick up with verse 22, and you the title of the message today is, Sometimes We Need to Hear What We Don't Want to Hear. Maybe you've noticed the past couple of weeks I've talked about us approaching the saddest verse in the Bible. Well, guess what? So if you look at that John chapter 6, verse 22, FF, that means to the end of the chapter. If I simply put an F, that would mean into the subject matter. So it's FF. We're going all the way to the end. You see there's that underline that's up behind me. Some, that should tell you, if I said before that the saddest verse in the Bible, in my opinion, is in this chapter, and then I'm telling you now, we're, we haven't hit it yet, but we're covering the rest of the chapter you detectives would be able to figure it out. It's today. But I want to give you a heads up because since I have been here, we have yet to cover this many verses. How many verses? 50 verses today. Okay, brace yourself. Here we go. We'll begin with John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not here, there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now that's a lot of text. we got a lot more to go. But just note that they, the people there noticed there's a missing boat. Several other boats had come from all around because people had heard. Understand the momentum is building. And it's a very significant moment we're heading into because these boats must have carried a lot of people, because most theologians believe that the biggest crowd that Jesus would ever have is about to assemble. They won't fit into the place where they're going to assemble. So understand the dynamic would be that as he is speaking inside this facility, that people are outside and they're spreading the word. There's no PA system. So they've got to say, he said this, and it's just spreading. But there's a lot of excitement because he's been healing so many people, and he's going to heal more. That's why they're seeking him. Now, what I'd like to do is show you a map. This is slightly different than the last two weeks, but you can see Gennesaret is marked, and you can see Bethsaida and Capernaum. Now, there was there were two Bethsaidas, by the way. There's there's one on the east and one on the west. But this just gives you an idea of what it looked like. And on the map, we're, we're kind of we're not real sure exactly where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. But most people agree that it's this place called Tabka. Um, And and then you see that thing, Matthew just popped up, Matthew 14. It gives us some insight. Mark is up there on the screen behind me. gives us some insight as to where things have been moving. So Gennesaret is where they apparently landed, the disciples and Jesus. And... somewhere between, according to our text, we're going to be between Gennesaret and Capernaum. So you can see that yellow line that's up behind me. If you're colorblind, you're just going to have to trust me. That's what it is. That thick line is somewhere in between those two dots, Gennesaret and Capernaum. But I want to remind you, when you're reading the Bible, there is a major rule anytime you read any verse in the Bible. Remember this. Context is king. So so if you have that in mind, and some of you already read ahead, you already know where they actually are. It matters. Because at this point in time, you could be confused. Like, where are they? Are they against Gennesaret, or are they in Capernaum? It says they landed in Gennesaret, but then it says the people went looking in Capernaum. Where are they? If you read ahead, you'll know. But we'll get there. John chapter 6, we pick up with verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So get the dynamic. They've been looking for him by boat. There's probably still some that are coming by foot. I mean, the rumor is is pretty strong now. This guy keeps healing people, and he's done some amazing miracles. They haven't heard that he's walked on the water yet. They will hear of that. But the thing they're impressed with is the the food. Now, I don't know about you, but most men have learned by mistake, don't ever tell your wife that it's not as good as the way my mother made it. That's just a bad (laughs) idea. Um, But some of you know you've got this favorite food that somebody fixes, maybe your spouse, your husband or your wife, maybe a parent, maybe somebody you know, maybe it's a local restaurant, but you've, you love these particular meals. Uh, the pastor here has been bringing in donuts for a while, and some of us love them too much, including the pastor. But some of us, we just love certain foods. You probably could name your favorite. As you're thinking right now, you probably have something in your, in your mind. Some of us have trouble getting to a church service because we're thinking about lunch. But when the people in Israel were fed manna from heaven, that had to be special. I mean, it never says anywhere that they got tired of it. It's, it's kind of like college students in ramen noodles. They never get tired. They just keep on eating ramen noodles. You know, it's cheap. It's easy. There it is. But it's better than that because it's from God. You can't beat the creator of the universe making food. And Jesus fed the 15,000-plus, if you do the math the way we've done it, and it's obvious, there's women and children included. After he feeds them, everybody gets their fill. So people weren't taking a bite and going, "Mm, I'm not in the mood. Everybody was filled, which means this is good food. I don't even know how that would work in this modern world in which we live, where we've generated so many picky eaters. I have a nephew who came to my house after he graduated high school. And as I was fixing food, I asked him if he had ever tried this. And he said, I've, I've ne- I don't know, I've never had a bean. He'd never eaten beans in his life. This is the way we're raising kids today. They're like so picky. You just get them the next thing. They don't tell them to eat what's on their plate. That's not trendy anymore. We don't parent much. But it doesn't really matter if God's fixed it. They'd like it anyway. Everybody would like it because it's God food. And Jesus just did that. He fed the 5,000, 15,000, if you do the math, or more, and everybody enjoyed the food. So they're marveling at this food. Jesus has taken off with his disciples. Only one boat is gone. Where are they? They want to find him. And we learn when we read ahead, what they really want is some more of that food because that was good. That was really good. It was God food. You can't get better than God food. So after they have that, you know, they're craving it. And so they want this miracle again. I want some God food. And so they ask him the wrong question. They've been looking for him. They haven't been able to find him. And then they find him. Rabbi, when did you come here? That's kind of if you think about it, there's so many other questions they could have asked. That's really not a great question. That's the way we are sometimes, too. Sometimes we ask these crazy questions. We'll do something like pray for wisdom, and then God teaches us a lesson. And then we're like, why, God, why? We don't even back up and think, well, I asked for wisdom. Is he teaching me something? <laughs> well, there they are, being just like us. So we pick up with the next few verses, with verse 26 and following. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Now, He's already claimed to be God. Now, He's claiming that it's, this is permanent, can't be changed. I'm Him. I'm the One. Don't be focused on these signs. Don't be focused on this food that you're focused on. You need to focus on me. That's what He's saying. And that's a pretty powerful statement. And He mentions eternal life, and He's going to keep doing this, but don't miss this. The, the people... I mean, here's the creator of the universe who just walked on water. He just fed over 15,000 people, more than likely. And he's in an obscure place, and they struggle to find him. And when they find him, (laughs) when did you get here? It was like they they had a hard time. Do you think he did that on purpose? Made it harder to find him. They have to really, really work to find him. And then he says, don't work for food that perishes. Work for something that's eternal that I can give you. He's heading somewhere, somewhere with all of this. And by the way, don't miss the truly, truly part. That's amen, amen. This is the way it is. This is a fact. This is a fact. He says it twice. This is it. Then look at these next two verses. These are some, if you haven't highlighted in your Bible, you're going to want to do that. Verse 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is a bigger statement than you might realize. There's a new trend out there, and I don't have a slide for it, but you might want to keep this in your mind. This trend is called deconstructing faith. Have you heard this? There's multiple uh, prominent Christian theologians, pastors, Christian artists, who renounce their faith. You've heard this. And then there are those that do what they call deconstructing their faith. And what this is, is basically people who are coming to terms with what they believe now is very different than what they believed before when it comes to Christianity. And there's two different kinds of deconstructing faith, and I've not read anything distinguishing between the two. But there are those who are actually renouncing their faith. They just make up their own religion. It's like somebody who talks to you that's got multiple faiths. You know, they have, I believe this and I believe that. And it all goes to the same place. And don't I still go to heaven if I just live how I want and I still believe these things? Well, so you've imagined a heaven in your mind then. okay, go there. It's a made-up place. You can just fantasize that you're going to go to this made-up place. The heaven that's in the Bible that is not a made-up place, that is actually real, That heaven has directions, and the second kind of people that have deconstructed their faith are a fascinating bunch. They are people that have not reconstructed their faith, but rather they have actually gone to the Word of God, for the most part, and have determined that, wait a minute, what I believed all along is not what the Bible teaches. And so for them, deconstructing their faith is actually getting back to the Bible. You can go back to the Reformation and the Restoration, these ideas that people, why can't we just get back to the Bible? If you just start with the Bible, you'll never have a need to re- deconstruct or reconstruct your faith. That's why 1 Timothy 4.16 is so important. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. For if you do, you're not hearing me? I might have a dead battery. Testing, one, two, three. Still Nothing. I have a dead battery. You gonna bring some? All right. We'll pause and I'll try to fix this on the recording that goes online. Come on now. I'll let you do it. <laughs> Thanks Dan. This awkward pause is perfect. Thank you, sir. All right. Now we will get powered back up. This awkward pause. I was trying to figure out how I could generate an awkward pause. There you go. Echo. I hear me. And uh, I didn't have to. God provided an awkward pause for all of us. He always does that. He's very good at taking care of us. So... 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, for if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. It's vital that we watch what we believe. Here's the problem, is when we come across a verse like this, this, this flies in the face of a lot of people's beliefs. There's a book out right now, uh, it's... Uh, it's a book that is upholding Calvinism. It's a book that's basically trying to call all Christians everywhere to cling to Calvinism at all costs because it's it's disintegrating. People are actually starting to denounce Calvinism all over the world. And so there are people that are in full-on panic mode because their doctrines in their churches wrap around Calvinism. And there's much Scripture that talks about this. We shouldn't be upholding man above the Bible. Who cares about some doctrine somebody came up with? Does it align with Scripture? If it does, hang on to it. If it doesn't, let go of it. But here's the problem is we come across a Scripture as we're reading. And you, can, you know, you've been here. We've just been going through the Bible. And as we do, we upset people. People get upset. And you, you read this verse, and I believe it. And, and it could be about baptism. Read it. I believe it. And we could have people who walk out the door and never want to walk back in this building again because they don't like somebody reading that verse and going, I believe it. Why? Because they've been taught something different. And here's, here's a perfect example because people, let me just use that as an example. People will say, well, then you're saying you need to be baptized. No, I'm not. I'm saying I agree with the Scriptures that says I need to be baptized. That's what I'm saying. Well, then you're saying we need to be baptized. No, that's what Scripture says. Well, that's your opinion. No, just read it in your Bible. Just go with that. People don't like it. Well, then, then you're saying you're, you can do works to go to heaven. What do you mean? Well, if you say you need to be baptized, I don't say that the Bible says it. Okay, well, if you say that, you're saying that you have to do works to go to heaven. Because you're calling baptism a work. Let me make it very painfully clear. God is so sovereign. He gave us a verse like this. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' answer was believe. Now, if Jesus called believing a work, and people want to say, well, you can't say you need to be baptized. You can't say just just believe that verse, because then you're saying you do works to go to heaven because you're calling baptism a work. I don't care if you call baptism a work. Jesus called believing a work. And who's going to say you don't have to believe? <laughs> See, it's just, just be reasonable and trust his word. And when Jesus says to believe, it's certainly more than just acknowledging, okay, yeah, okay, I think Jesus is probably real. It's more than that. Believing, according to James 2, includes illustrating your belief. You say you believe, show me. That's what he's talking about. So he says, this is the work of God. Believe. And what did he just get done telling them? Uh, Don't try to work for food that perishes. You need to work for what I can give you. And they say, okay, what work do we need to do? Believe in me. That's what he's saying to them. You need to believe in me. Believe in Jesus. Okay, that's powerful. That's why I wanted you to highlight that in your Bible if you didn't already do that. We'll move on. We've got some more verses to cover. Picking up with verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Their mind is not on what He's saying. They're not paying attention to what He's saying. They're talking about, Man, liking, you I know, like the, what you did back there with those 15,000 plus people, and we had some of that, and we heard about that. Like, um, We'll take it. Jesus is saying, manna, he's he's talking about Moses didn't give you that. My father did. And uh, he's given to you something now that comes from heaven. And they're like, whoa, 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 give us some more. They're still focused on the food. He's not talking about that. Do you think he knows that? Of course he knows that. It continues, picking up with verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven." Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now he's been saying this all along. Remember the part about, I only do what my father teaches me. That's because I'm the son. And he said, because I am. So he's repeating, he's regurgitating the same stuff. They're fascinated with this God food that he can provide, this wonderful miracle. It tastes so good, everybody gets their fill. I want some more. Or somebody who just heard about it, I want some. The crowds are crowded around him for the healing, of course. You read that in Mark and Matthew's account. But they want the food. They've heard all about this food. People all over the countryside have been talking about the food. They've gathered, and he's talking about other things. They're still wanting the food. He just keeps talking about other things. They want the food. They're focused on the food. And he says, I am the bread. Okay, it continues, verse 39 and following. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. He's reiterated what He just said. He's never gonna cast people out who truly believe in Him. And these people are gonna have eternal life. He'll raise them up on the last day. All this is promise of eternal life. If you just believe in me, you'll have eternal life, which means living for me, doesn't just mean acknowledging with your head, but demonstrating that belief. We'll continue. He he presses on, verse 41 and following. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now get the dynamic he says these things, these things are repeated in the building all the way outside to the crowds, and he hears the grumbling. The tone is shifting. Don't we know him? We, how can he say he came from heaven when we, Mary and Joseph are his parents? I mean, he came from them. How is he saying he came from heaven? So they're grumbling, and Jesus catches this and says, Do not grumble. So can you imagine being the ones passing the messages along? As we're talking, he's saying he's from heaven, but he's, you know, Mary and Joseph's son. Hey, he's saying he's from heaven. He's Mary and Joseph's son. How could he say this? How could he say this? And then the word comes out. He says, stop grumbling. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't that funny? That's hilarious. The wave that would just pass along. He said, stop grumbling. I just, I just yelled the grumbling. So that's what's going on. And it continues. There's more verses. Verse 44 and following. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, and Jesus continues to interject these little theological bombs. So what he's doing is he just keeps on dropping these bombs, and the theologians in the crowds are, you know, they're they're questioning these things. And now he's he's dropped another one right here. No one's seen the Father. What about Elijah? Didn't he get caught up in a whirlwind? You know. Yeah. What about Enoch who walked with God? What about Moses on the mountain? There's all these different things. You know, people are asking these questions and and it all can be discussed, but the grumblings are continuing even after he just said, don't grumble, then he interjects some more stuff for them to grumble about because he knows they're going to do it. He's creating a dynamic and you'll see what he's doing as we continue on. We're heading towards an awkward pause. John chapter 6, verse 47 continues. Truly, truly... is my flesh." Awkward pause. He keeps talking about this bread that gives eternal life. They, they're focused on real food, and he finally, after he drops all these little bombs and they're arguing, and if you can imagine, there's a couple of people debating, yeah, well, didn't, didn't Elijah? I mean, he got called up to heaven. What about Enoch? And what about Moses? All these different things, you know, well, didn't they see God? And then he's saying, I'm the only one that's seen God. So different people are arguing. There's people that aren't. But in the crowds, there's little debates going on, discussions, grumblings that are going on. And then he drops the big one. After he's already been alluding to it, he comes right out and says, what you need to eat is my flesh. What? Can you imagine that being yelled? You need to he says we need to eat his flesh. That's what what he just said. Eat my flesh. What? Maybe that makes you think of a trendy thing right now. There's a movie uh, or a series on uh, Netflix. I don't have Netflix. I used to. I felt like I was just wasting my money. I don't intend to watch this. I might. I work with people like this all the time. But Monster, this is the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, a cannibal. God, it ate people. And here we have this, oh, by the way, if, if you think that I'm promoting this, you're wrong. Yeah, I'm not promoting this. I don't intend to watch it myself. Like I said, I work with people like that. Now, there is this awkward pause that's going on. I've, you're running the computer, Chris. All right, can you back up? Because I skipped the part that you noticed and they might have too. A couple of slides, one more. And then click, there you go. Those are the references that Jesus gave when he, he basically referenced, he referenced the prophets. He purposely referenced multiple prophets Isaiah 54, 13, 62, three, 2, and 3. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 to 34. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Micah 4, 2. Zephaniah 3, 9. And Malachi 1, 11. All of those say what Jesus just said in one line. And so the scholars that are debating back and forth, they, whew, he just got their attention. But then he dropped the bomb. Fast forward to Jeffrey Dahmer. And then we'll go after the awkward pause. There it is. Not advocating for it. Now, John chapter 6, verse 58 our 52 picks up the Jews then amongst disputed amongst themselves saying how can this man how can this man give us his flesh to eat so Jesus said to them truly truly once again he's doing it again he's done it 3 times now i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, hold on. If there was an awkward pause before, there really is now. He said, I think he said, we got to eat his flesh. Really? Yeah, I think so. Then he clarifies. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he's saying. So their mind is not on that God food anymore. Their mind is that's like, are we, are we hearing this right? It continues. John chapter six verse fifty six. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, Father so. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So now we know. Context is king. Remember that? So Jesus is actually in the synagogue At Capernaum, he's in there teaching the theologians. And all this is spreading to the outside, and you know there's really grumbling inside the synagogue because the theologians are definitely in there, especially the Pharisees. He keeps reiterating what they... If if it was me and I was there, and I would probably be just like the crowds, did he say, eat his flesh? Then he repeats it. Uh, he did. Then he repeats it again, and he does it with this truly, truly. This is a fact. This is a fact. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what he's saying. And then, I don't know if you notice this. Um, in, the, in the Greek, you would notice, but if you... So if you had a Greek Bible and you're reading along where it says bread, you see a footnote up there behind me. It's got a C on it. That, that word's not there. You have to presume that that's what he's talking about. So this bread that came down from heaven, not like the the fathers ate. It seems to me that it's reasonable that the assumption wouldn't be just bread. The assumption would be manna. This, This is something God provided. And he's talking about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I guarantee you, just like you sitting there right now, you're thinking, why did he say that? Why? this is this would be awkward for anybody in the crowd, even the disciples and some of you have read in context when I say context is king it 's vital that we understand this whole book some of you haven 't even read it front to back, but you should you can 't really understand each little piece if you don 't understand the whole so context is king so most of us have read most of it hopefully a bunch of us have read all of it most of us know that when he's talking about this kind of thing this is kind of a precursor to what's to come because we just had communion and we are symbolically eating flesh and blood but it's not as flesh and blood there is a there is a church a couple of them that teach transubstantiation have you heard of this and they they actually teach their people you're supposed to believe that when the communion is blessed, it actually becomes the real flesh and blood of Jesus. I don't know that anybody really believes that, but that's what they teach. And I had a priest explain that in detail to me because I was curious enough to ask, how does this work? And he explained to me that he actually teaches his people that you cannot spit for an hour Like, just teach your people don't spit. How about that? That's just polite. But anyway, you can't spit for an hour after having communion because you could be spitting out the blood and the flesh and blood of Jesus on the sidewalk and somebody could just walk along and step on Jesus. They teach this stuff. Crazy. So, most of us understand this is definitely some kind of an illusion that we're going to understand the importance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That he actually was a physical person who died and he rose again. He was a physical person who suffered and bled and died. So we, re- we have the bread and the juice to remember those, those things. And we do that as we're instructed to proclaim his death until he comes. That's what we do. And there's a connection to this. It's not the only connection. Because Jesus is basically saying, you need to be all in. You need to believe me. You need to be all in. That's what this is about. To have the kind of fellowship with him that we need, which I don't know if you know, but koinonia is the word for communion, and it's the word for fellowship. It's the same word. That's what he's talking about. But I guarantee you, not only did the people not understand, neither did his disciples The kind of faith that Jesus requires is the kind of faith that says, okay, Jesus, I don't understand, but I trust you. I have faith. I'm going to believe. I I don't understand. I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds like cannibalism, but but I am going to trust that it's something else, and I'm just going to believe. That's that's this big bomb he's dropped on everybody. He needs people to be all in, even if they don't understand. I guarantee you, this is not what the people who came for God food wanted to hear. And I also can guarantee you, his disciples were in an awfully strange position. Can you imagine being one of the twelve Around Jesus, this is our guy, this is our guy, and then he starts saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he repeats it. And they're like, did he really say that? Let me tell you, it's a fact, it's a fact. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Can you imagine being one of the twelve? They're like, oh, this is strange. And the grumblings are happening, and you don't know how to answer. I wouldn't have known how to answer. (laughs) Let's go ahead and continue reading. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard thing. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the spirit who gives life? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There you go. He's saying there's symbolism here. I'm telling you something that is way deeper than you're going on this. And if you will understand it, it'll give you life. They're, They're not understanding it. I just wonder if there are some on the peripheral, some, some that are hearing this and they're scratching their heads going, I, I know he's not really. This is the guy. He did that big miracle. Everything he's saying is making sense, and I don't understand this. And he just said he's figuratively speaking. I want to hear what he has to say. I'd like to think I would be one of those. I want to hear more. I, it's weird. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I think this guy's real. <clears throat> and we'll move on to the next verse. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew that knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray Him. And He said... This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by Him, granted Him by the Father. And this, once again, this is takes. We're talking about some kind of doctrine that, outside of the Bible, where people take this and they launch from it and create their own thing. Where it basically is saying that uh, God picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who's not. This is talking about the grace of God. I thank God that I had people in my life that shared Jesus with me. Don't you? I, that's what happens. And God, and, and if you, P.T. Butler, if you read his commentary on John, he emphasizes, in fact, he spends a, probably the biggest chunk in his book talking about this section. People are drawn to Jesus through the word. That's what does it. The word of God is so powerful. We can't really do it, but if we know it and we can teach it, we can share it, the Word of God draws people in. Now, he's talking about what sounds like cannibalism, and he's now telling them, like, you wouldn't even be able to hear what I'm telling you if you haven't been drawn by God. And, and only those who are choosing to believe, well, that's by God's grace. And as he's saying all this, I want you to pay attention to this verse. John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is the saddest verse in the Bible. How sad is that? John chapter 6, verse 66. And here's a a crazy thing, is you're going to remember that. After today, you'll remember that verse number as what the preacher thinks is the saddest verse in the Bible. That is kind of sad, isn't it? It was first brought to my attention by Kyle Eidelman, the preacher at Southeast Christian Church who's currently on sabbatical. This stage is much larger than this one, but... On the Sunday that he learned, prior to the Sunday, he learned he was going to be preaching his first time to the crowd on Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning. He learns that he's going to be preaching to this church of, that weekend would be around 30,000 people showing up for Sunday morning church. And they actually start on Saturday night. But he's sending in a, Essentially, it was like a coliseum. He sits on the steps, and as he sits down, and he looks out at the empty chairs and the pews and the stadium seating in an empty room with the lights on, and he's imagining the biggest crowd he would ever speak to. And he was praying, and he was asking God, what do I say to get him to come back? What do I say to get more to return? I mean, the the one opportunity that I have to speak to the largest crowd that I'll ever speak to, what words should I say that would get them to come back? And he got up, because he didn't have a Bible, and he went to the back of one of the chairs or pews, and he grabbed the Bible, sat back down, and he flipped through it, and he did what no good scholar typically does. He just flipped through the pages and opened his Bible, and there it was. And he landed, and he was focused on John chapter six verse sixty six thought what and he looked back and he remembered his studies. He remembered this would most likely be the largest crowd that Jesus would ever have after the feeding of the 15,000 plus, the crowds continued to multiply and they found him in a synagogue and they couldn't fit and they were all spread out on the outside and the largest crowd that Jesus would ever have, did he say what needed to be said to get them to come back to him or did he say what they didn't want to hear and many left him? And so Kyle Eidelman was convicted. I don't need to say something that attracts them to come back. I need to say what God wants me to say. And if that drives them away, it drives them away. And sometimes God says things to us that we don't want to hear. And sometimes when we don't want to hear what God wants us to hear, needs us to hear, we walk away. And that's what happened on this day, this fateful day. Jesus would be speaking to what theologians believe is the largest crowd he would ever speak to in any one gathering. And what he said drove almost all of them away. So much so, look at the next verse. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? You know it hurt. As he said what the father needed him to say, what they didn't want to hear, they left the synagogue. The crowds outside dissipated. Oh, there were some on the peripheral, of course. There were some that lingered. But there were so few that Jesus said to the twelve, you all want to leave too? And you know they're thinking, many of them are thinking, well, we don't really understand what you're saying. Peter's made so many foolish statements that we see recorded in Scripture, but here he kind of has, has something that kind of redeems himself a little bit. If you look at this, look at the next couple of verses. Verse 68, we pick up, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good on, Peter. You know, he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, but he tells him, we know who you are. You're the one. We've, we've kept believing, and we're still here. Who else will we go to? Good for him. But Jesus being just like Jesus is, So it's kind of a feel-good moment for you and for me. It's like, oh, good for Peter. The disciples are going to stay. The 12, they're going to stay. Most of the crowd's gone. The 12 are going to stay. Good for Peter. This feels good. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not supposed to be all about how good we feel. We get to have these blessings from time to time where it feels like heaven on earth. It happens sometimes when we're singing songs together. Happens to me every single time I'm approaching this parking lot on a Sunday morning and I know I get to see my church family. I absolutely feel good. I love it. But it's not all about that. It's not about my feelings. And so Jesus doesn't leave it right there. Peter did very well. But look what Jesus does next. Verse seventy. And we'll read two verses, and that's the end of our text. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here in this powerful moment when the disciples have clung to Jesus, Jesus highlights a nasty negative truth. Talks about Judas. And if we had time, we could flesh this out and talk more about Judas. But it's a very sad Judas's end. But here he's approaching his end. And as he is there, when Jesus says, Y'all want to leave me too? Peter speaks for all of them. <laughs> Where would we, who would we follow? Where would we go? We know who you are. We've seen. Judas is in there with all of that. He knows. Just like us. We know. We have, we've seen it. Jesus is real. We've prayed, and prayers have been answered miraculously. Jesus has come in. There's times when we come to church and we're not feeling it, and then all of a sudden he grabs a hold of us, and he's got us. We know this Jesus is real. And yet, some of us make decisions that are like the devil. Let's let's highlight that word devil. You'll see it behind me. Barely highlighted. It doesn't really show up very well, does it? I've got a little box around it with a red line. It's a black box. Um, Let's go and look at the Greek word. You'll see it up behind me. You probably can't read that. That is diabolos. You'll see it transliterated, diabolos. And if you speak other languages, there are five other languages where that word is almost identical in five other languages. So basically, they've taken the Greek word for devil and transliterated it into multiple other languages. Now, in the English, we don't do that. But you've heard of words like diablos. And what does it mean? Here's the translation for this word slanderer, false accuser, deceiver. And he's referring to Judas because Peter speaks on behalf of everyone. Where, where Where would we go? Who would we follow? You're the guy. We, we have believed. We've seen all these things you've done. We know who you are. Judas knows who he is. And yet, when Jesus asks the question, y'all want to leave too? Judas stays. And I wonder if he knows, as Jesus is speaking and saying, one of you is a devil, a deceiver, a slanderer. A false accuser. I wonder if Judas knows. This, that's me. He's talking about me. We learn later he's one that's been helping himself into the purse of the, that the disciples have for their needs. He's been stealing. And we learn later that he also has set Jesus up to be taken. So Judas is a deceiver. And even though we know, we've come to know that Jesus is real, sometimes some of us are just faking it. Awkward pause. Is it me? Here's some lessons learned in the text today. We're going to go through them. There are seven things. This is the so what part. Sometimes we ask the wrong questions. (laughs) Instead of saying, why are you doing this, Jesus? How about, are you trying to give me wisdom in this? Sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Sometimes we are too caught up in the sensational. A lot of, a lot of people do that in churches. Just like the disciples and some of those that were in the crowds that were so caught up in the food. Sometimes we need to be taught things we don't want to hear. I remember learning a a painful lesson one time. I was always taught measure twice, cut once, but then I didn't. Many of you have examples like that where you were taught something, you really didn't understand how important it was until, oops, I should have listened to what I was taught. Sometimes we don't want to hear what we need to be taught. And um, in the world in which we live today, a very popular phrase is, "I got this." And too many times you see somebody say that, and they don't. Too many times it's been us. Sometimes we won't understand what we're taught until later. I guarantee you the disciples didn't understand. The crowd that left, they didn't understand, even the peripheral that stuck around, they didn't understand. And sometimes even we in church, we don't understand. Sometimes Jesus expects us to believe what we don't yet understand. Okay, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you. Sometimes one of us is a devil, slanderer, false accuser, deceiver. And there are devils that have come into our lives that have taught us people don't change. Maybe you've heard this. People just throw it out there every now and then, well, people don't change. People just never change, (laughs) which undoes huge libraries of books that have been written on how to change and stories of people who were once going one direction and they change and now they're going another direction. Most of us in this room have powerful testimonies where we were going one way, now we're going another. We're examples, true life examples of people changing. So when somebody says people don't change, that's a lie. That is the devil deceiving people through the mouth of somebody who may not even realize what's going on. Now here, we live in a world right now that things seem to be falling apart in, in so many different ways. And many of us are like, well... That's what you get when you vote for somebody like that. That that's always happens. People are like that. But let me, let me throw this out there to you. The devil is so clever. I think, I think oftentimes the people that he's using, the politicians that he's using, the people in charge of social media, the, lawyer, the crooked lawyers, I, I'm sure some of them are devils, sure some of them are deceivers, but I think many of them are deceived. They just don't know. They think they're doing what's best and the devil has deceived them, which is what happens to us. Sometimes we think we got it all figured out and the devil deceived us and we have to change and get our minds back on track. And people of God, you know, this is the book that draws us to Jesus. It's the book that anchors us to him, to the anchor of life. This is the book that has words for eternal life that leads us to Jesus. And if you are here this morning and you need to be pulled into that world, then let it happen. Let God do that. Don't be deceived. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us your word that is so powerful. For giving us a story and for giving us the saddest verse in the Bible, in my opinion. Thank you for reminding us that any of us could be deceived. Any of us could be focused on the wrong thing, could be focused on the sensational. Thank you for reminding us that we need to be all in, believing even if we don't understand. We do trust you, Lord, and we intend to demonstrate that by how we show you we do believe. Thank you for pulling us closer. Please keep doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.